This morning we continue our Advent series that's called The Gifts of Christmas. We're uh, addressing this series because we all fall prey to the commercial craze of the season, the shopping, the wrapping, the decorating. And in the midst of all that, we want to take time to focus on the more valuable, longest-lasting treasures that Jesus' coming, His Advent, arrival here on earth has brought to His people, the gifts of Christmas. We started with the gift of promised hope. The old man Simeon anticipated the coming of the Savior, and that hope was fulfilled as he held the baby Jesus. Then last week, we looked at Jesus' coming as the gift of light shining into darkness. And this morning... I know this is going a little bit out of order, um, time-wise and scripture-wise. We'll look to the prophet Isaiah, who describes the later coming Messiah, and he gives the Messiah several titles, one of which is the Prince of Peace. Before I read that verse, uh, I want to set a little bit of the background of Isaiah so we can understand um, how the people would have received this word in their time. It's Israel in the 8th century B.C., and Israel had become a nation walking in darkness. The people had turned away from God in disobedience, in false worship, and at the same time, it was related, the Assyrian Empire to the northeast, modern-day parts of Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey, uh, Assyria was growing stronger And it was only a matter of time before that nation, that empire, set its sights on Israel and its people to conquer, to possess. In that context, the Lord called Isaiah to serve him as prophet, to speak his words. And his message to his contemporaries is very straightforward. Judgment is coming. It will not turn aside and miss them. Israel would be destroyed and sent off into exile in a foreign land, and God would purify his people like a forest fire that consumes everything in its path. And yet, those are gospel words, and yet, inside a charred stump, God would preserve a spark of life, a remnant of vitality. And so Isaiah's message of judgment includes within it this hint of divine rescue, that one day light would shine into darkness. And one day, Isaiah 7, verse 14, a son would be born to a virgin, and she would call him Emmanuel, God with us. That brings us to our text today. Simply put, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Listen carefully. These are God's words. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Give us spirit eyes to see what's coming, Lord, just as Isaiah was given that kind of vision from you. Give us eyes to see what has come already in Christ, in his birth and in his death, and give us a heart like Simeon to anticipate the fulfillment of promised hope when Jesus comes again. We pray in his name. Amen. I want us to stay for a minute in that context in which Israel would have heard Isaiah's prophecy. 
It was a world of sin and darkness. It was a culture going down the tubes, a godless, unfaithful, faithless people. Now the target of other nations' desire to conquer. And I wonder if any of that sounds familiar to us today, 2,800 years later. More than anything, in, in that context, Israel longed to see the Messiah come and bring peace, bring a restoration of, of, of what the Bible calls shalom. Shalom isn't just peace, although it's properly translated peace. Shalom is this full-orbed, complete harmony of everything as it's supposed to be, as God designed it, um, a, a restoration to a taste of Eden, if you will a taste of glory before sin ruined everything. That's what Israel wanted, that kind of peace. The only problem was, as a people, the the nation of Israel didn't realize that there was as much need for that kind of restored peace inside of the people as much as they thought it was needed outside amongst the foreign sinners. Whether or not you believe that the Messiah has come, and that his name is Jesus. What do you long for during this Christmas season? I think in in the context of of, of a nation in turmoil, uh, of a nation that is the target of foreign people seeking to destroy it, I think we can relate and say that one of the universal things we long for during this Christmas season is world peace, is is a restoration of harmonious relations among nations, among people groups. But on a more mundane level, at the end of the day, don't we long for a little bit of peace and quiet? And at the very end of the day, when we hope to get some good rest at night, isn't it easier to sleep if you have peace of mind? That's what we need. Marital relationships are filled with discord. Sibling rivalry is a daily reality in families. There's religious conflict, racial conflict, Arguments over national boundaries. It used to be that armies of nations needed to travel towards one another and meet on some battlefield but before they could engage. And now the battleground is everywhere, anywhere we go. It used to be that neighbors gathered in the public square to debate and argue and perhaps quarrel, fight. And then one day you could pick up the phone and call someone on the other end of the country and argue over the phone. And these days, you can log on to any social media platform and engage in conflict with anyone in any part of this globe. Conflict has become far too easy to uh, access and engage in. You post a picture of your goldfish, and somebody's going to pick a fight with you for some statement that they disagree with. What we really need in every part of life is reconciliation this restored harmony and peace that God intended for his people and his creation to enjoy. But sin ruined it all. And what we really need, first and foremost, is peace with God. And only then can we taste any measure of peace among other people. How do we find that kind of peace? It's at the heart of Christmas. Uh, two, two things that we'll just briefly look at this morning. First, why do we need this peace with God? When we use the word sin in today's culture, it, very often it's met with one of two kinds of reactions. Maybe there's others, but I think these are the two main ones. 
One kind of reaction um, is reacting with disdain and even disbelief. Those are primitive religious closed kind of words that you're using. The disbelief that you would even utilize that kind of vocabulary in today's advanced, evolved, modern world. And so that reaction of disdain uh, sometimes sounds like this. You Christians are always focusing on what's wrong with everybody else. You're, you're judging. Who are you to judge me? I will decide for myself what is right. The other reaction tends to come from within the church. It's uh, a reaction that's filled with a, a, a good dose of self-righteousness. Like the nation of Israel, we said, seeing, thinking that sin is a problem that's out there and a minor problem in here. And so that kind of reaction within the church very often sometimes sounds like this. You don't measure up. My problem in my world is that the people around me just screw up all the time. And if they would only do the right thing, if they'd only behave like Christians are supposed to do, if they'd only conform, and I happen to know how they need to conform, then everything would be right with the world. Sin becomes a means of wagging the finger rather than self-examination and repentance and humility. A biblical response to the first attitude uh, needs to major on the real motivation for talking about sin and perhaps in some contexts pointing it out. Sin is a terminally spiritual condition. Sin is what is most broken about your heart and mind and body, and God offers healing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. A biblical response to the second uh, attitude agrees that there's something very wrong with every person's heart. Sin is uh, deep, and it's deceptive, and it's highly influential. But trying harder to demonstrate moral purity does not free a person from that terminally, uh, uh, terminal disease of sin. Only God offers freedom from the sin, which runs far more deep than you would ever realize. In either case, here's the Bible's serious language about sin. It means that we are enemies of God. It means that we're alienated from Him. Paul the Apostle says this in Colossians chapter 1. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. We, we, we tend to think of sin, even within the church, as, you know, I messed up, I, I uh, didn't choose the right thing, I'll do better next time. Scripture says, oh no, it's far worse. You've rebelled against the king. You've committed treason. You are his enemy in your sin. Well, what does sin look like? What, when, when we take the place of God, which is at the root of every sin, when we claim the prerogative to determine what's best for my life, the path that I will choose to make me happy, that's the prerogative of God. What does it look like when we commit that most basic of alienating attitudes and behaviors. Paul gives us this list in Galatians, Galatians chapter 5. He says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Does that sound familiar? You know, so often, I, I think when we put a label on sin... We tend to distance ourselves and say, well, 
I get angry, but hatred, no, no, I don't, I don't, I'm not a hating kind of person, you know, um, discord, dissensions, no, I had disagree with people every now and then, and, and I'm, I'm a pretty assertive kind of guy, but that's too strong, that's the kind of problem, I think, that afflicts us, when we put a label on something, we say, I, I'm not that, self-righteous, no, that's not me, L- listen to a contemporary pr- paraphrase translation by Eugene Peterson, same verses, He writes this, it is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go on. He's putting it in, in perhaps language that we can more easily relate to. I'm not sure any of us can escape the vast majority of those kinds of descriptions. Does that help you as an alternate translation realize that each of us is guilty as charged and we have a problem? In our sin, we have alienated God. We've made ourselves His enemies. You know, as a pastor counselor, let alone as a father and a son myself, I I see how parents profoundly impact the identity of their children. Whether you're 70 years old or seven years old, this is true. Uh, it's, it's inescapable. There's often a strong desire to please one's earthly father. I think that's a, a natural desire that's built in. See, Daddy? Look at me. But the problem comes, of course, when that relationship begins to exhibit brokenness, when the father doesn't love as he should, when the child exhibits the DNA of Adam, in sin. And when that relationship breaks down, apart from the grace of God, not only is every other relationship affected until there's healing, but every part of life is affected. Work and leisure and friendships and worship. Here's what is sometimes startling. Even when there's some kind of abuse involved, sometimes there's still a strong desire to recover a measure of the healthy dad-to-child kind of relationship. It, it, it defies logic. Maybe it's contrary to circumstances, but sometimes, not always, there's a strong desire to, to make right something even when there's been significant sin against the child. Where does that come from? I think one explanation doesn't, doesn't explain it all is that there's a built-in God-designed urge to repair something core to our identities, to, to repair something that is not the way it's supposed to be. A father is supposed to provide security and love and affection, emotional safety to his child. And a child is supposed to be able to depend upon and trust in and rely on the father. Those are the the properly oriented dynamics of that relationship. But when it's not 
the case, sin has produced this brokenness. And as powerful as that dynamic may be amongst human beings, a father and a son or a father and a daughter, there's an even more powerful desire for every person to be restored to this rightful relationship with the Creator. If we're alienated, if we're enemies of God due to our sin, the most fundamental urge, desperate need that we should have is to be reconciled to God, is to taste peace, to be transformed not only from an enemy into a friend, but into a son or daughter adopted by the Heavenly Father Himself. Peace with God comes not through any negotiation, but through complete surrender. We, we come to the table with nothing with which to haggle, with nothing with which to deal. We come empty. Uh, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, as the great hymn puts it. And we come with empty hands, needing the greatest gift that God could possibly give us. Peace with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That gift is available to be received if you trust in Jesus, if you believe these things to be true. This is how Christmas connects, secondly, how Christmas offers reconciliation, how Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Right after Jesus entered the world as a baby, this scene unfolded. The angels break out into song, and one of the things they say is, is this. They praise God, and they say, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. Jesus has been born in Bethlehem. The shepherds are out in the field, and the angels say, God will receive all the glory, and humanity will receive peace. It didn't happen instantaneously, of course. God, uh, His design was not to immediately set right everything that had gone wrong, but there was a taste of it. God was glorified in the heavenly realms and amongst those who recognized what He was inaugurating in the coming of Jesus. And humanity was able to taste peace um, and, and anticipate that much more to come, but the fullness of that promise for God to receive the glory and for mankind to experience peace would not come until the end of Jesus' life. Listen to the Apostle Paul again, describing Jesus' reconciling work, peacemaking work. For He Himself is our peace, Ephesians chapter 2, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in His flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came, Christmas, and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Paul here is describing two hostile parties. Think differently. The worldviews are opposite. And the, the hostile parties in his context are, are the Jews and the Gentiles. Might as well be the Jews and the Palestinians in the Middle East with completely opposite objectives. The, the, the concept of bringing them together as one, let alone as um, respecting neighbors, is, is outlandish. It's not possible unless God accomplishes it. 
What is his purpose, Jesus' purpose? It's verse um, 16 or 15. To create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. It's not you exist over there and you exist over there and don't bother each other. It's not peace. That might give a parent some uh, a peace and quiet until dinner's ready, but that's not peace. That's not what the Bible describes it. You know, live separately and just don't invade each other. Jesus says peace comes when the two are made one. There's radical unity. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God. So he starts horizontally, two different people groups, two opposing worldviews, and he says, um, I'm going to make the two one, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, Good Friday, end of his life by which he put to death their hostility. Born that man no more may die. That's exactly what this verse is describing. Christmas and Good Friday, juxtaposed as they always must be. We can't celebrate the coming of Jesus without understanding his going as our substitute. He came and preached peace. Horizontal reconciliation, whether it's world peace or harmony between neighbors, or husbands and wives honoring each other. None of that is possible unless there's vertical reconciliation because that is what is fundamentally wrong with us. I'm all for the United Nations making its best efforts. I'm all for diplomatic envoys, ambassadors, meeting, um, having peace talks. None of that can possibly be successful in the end unless all peoples are reconciled with their primary enemy who is God himself because sin is universal. This is why Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He has come to make all things new. How? By making us new through faith in his life, death, and resurrection. The old Welsh commentator Matthew Henry writes about Ephesians chapter 2. And he says this, sin breeds a quarrel between God and men. We're enemies. Christ came, Christmas, to take up the quarrel and to bring it to an end. When did Christ come? Christmas. He advented. And when did he take up the quarrel? He took it upon himself on the cross. As we close, um, there's a rallying cry. You'll hear on the streets, on the news, um, particularly when there's some kind of injustice that has uh, occurred, or at least a perceived injustice. And the chant of the crowd is, no justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. And unless you're a member of the minority class that is personally offended by the incident, you might get upset watching the news or walking um, to the bus stop in the city. You might get upset at the retaliation at the anger of the crowd, at a civic unrest. But here's what we need to realize. That slogan, that chant, that attitude, no justice, no peace, is an absolutely fully biblical kind of slogan. It's not a political statement first and foremost. It's not a racial statement first and foremost. It's a gospel statement. Because uh, there can be no peace 
with God and with one another unless justice has first been paid. No justice, no peace. Sinful humanity, none of us could ever taste reconciliation with the Father unless justice that our sin deserves has been satisfied, unless the sentence that our sin deserves has been paid in full. How is that possible? There's one of two, there are two possibilities for justice to be paid in full. One is that every enemy of God, guilty of sin, transgressions against him, fully pays for our own sin in eternal condemnation. That would be just, and justice would be paid. Or God graciously provides a way out. And God surprisingly offers a solution that enables him to extend mercy and remain just and righteous. What does he do? The perfect son comes, advents, and lives the perfect life in obedience to the Father and deserves nothing but approval and um, remaining in this intimate relationship with his Father. And yet, the Son pays for the justice that our sins deserve. The Son serves as our substitute, and we get the peace. Paul says at the heart of the gospel, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since we have been justified, since we've been declared righteous, I'm not righteous, but in Christ. God the Father sees me as if I had lived the life Jesus lived. And I have peace only because there has been justice. So this slogan becomes all the more true. No Jesus, no peace. But if you know Jesus, if you trust in Him, if you embrace Him, if you recognize who He is and what He has done for you, then you will know, K-N-O-W, you will taste, you will experience, you will live in the peace that passes all understanding. That is our Christmas prayer, that every one of us here would know your need of reconciliation with the Father because you're an enemy in your sin and would know that Christmas means the Prince of Peace, Jesus himself, has come to make it possible through his death. Let's pray toward that end. Jesus, you are the amazing one, and you provide amazing grace that you would bear our cross, that you would take our place, that you would lay down your life to make it possible that we would be set free, that we would be given peace. This is the miracle of Christmas. This is the richest gift of all. Show us, Lord, as we finish shopping and wrapping, as we covet and lust after toys that will only give a flash of so-called happiness, show us that our hearts are built to long for this greatest gift of all, Jesus himself. We pray in his name. Amen.